It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode gets into topics like murder, including the murder of children, as well as rape, violence against women and children, and suicide. There's also some profanity. Wait staff have to put up with a lot of nonsense. If you've ever worked at a restaurant, you know. If not, then, well, the numbers don't lie. In The Tipping Point, a 2021 study conducted by activist group One Fair Wage in the UC Berkeley Food Labor Research Center, Professors Catherine A. McKinnon and Louise F. Fitzgerald uncovered some pretty disturbing trends in the food service industry. The study found that 71% of female respondents 
who were all restaurant workers, were sexually harassed at least once on the job. Researchers reported that this percentage is higher in restaurant work than in virtually every other industry. Those respondents mostly reported that customers were the main culprits, although some suffered harassment from their bosses too. And the situation is far worse for restaurant workers who make most of their money through tips. They, quote, experience sexual harassment at a rate far higher than their non-tipped counterparts. That rate is 76% of tipped workers compared with 52% of non-tipped workers. Among tipped workers, wait staff were less likely to say the situation was corrected than their non-tipped counterparts. So here's the breakdown. Waitresses working for below minimum wage who rely on tips to get by can't always drop the smile and tell diners to clear off. Especially not if they work at a joint where management doesn't support ejecting creeps bodily into the street. That conundrum leaves them far more vulnerable to the attentions of low lives while they're on the clock. In this episode, we'll profile the cases of four murdered waitresses. All met cruel fates at the hands of one man. Out of delusion or sheer entitlement, this man would show up at restaurants. There, he would interact with hardworking women assigned to serve him his food. He would consider these women his dates. And this man wasn't just hungry for whatever they had on the menu at these eateries. He frequented restaurants as a means of stalking waitresses, as his method for hunting prey. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is Waiting on Death, The Many Crimes of Serial Killer Joe Tour. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with true crime author and researcher Robert M. Dudley. Hailing from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Robert first began amateur sleuthing while looking into one of Minnesota's most infamous cold cases, the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling. On October 22, 1989, 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling was kidnapped by a masked stranger while riding his bike with his friend and younger brother in St. Joseph, Minnesota, a city in the North Star State's Stearns County. 
Robert pored over newspaper archives and devoted his time to online research around the case. He eventually published the book, Finding Jacob Wetterling, putting out new editions as more facts came out. And shortly after Robert published the first edition of his book, there were major developments in the case. DNA would eventually link a sexual predator named Danny James Heinrich to a similar abduction. Heinrich would eventually confess to murdering Wetterling. On September 1, 2016, he gave police information on where to find the boy's body. In exchange, Heinrich was not charged with Wetterling's kidnapping, assault, and murder. He was, however, hit with 20 years for possessing child sexual abuse materials. But even after answers came about in the Wetterling case, Robert realized he wasn't done. In my research, I realized there was a lot of other unsolved cases in that small rural area, and they weren't well known, and so I decided from that point forward I was going to focus on on lesser-known cases and try to raise awareness and just keep keep them alive and, and that sort of thing. That small rural area is Stearns County. Here's Robert. Well, Stearns County is an area in central Minnesota. It's, it's quite rural. There's, there's one major city called St. Cloud. It's almost like a sister city to where I live in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. A lot of farming uh, communities, a lot of people that originated from, from German ancestry, it was a, a popular place to settle back at, at the time before, before, or as it became a state. For whatever reason, there just tends to be a lot of unsolved crimes there or crimes that went on for a long time. When it comes to areas with a surprising number of unsolved crimes, Kevin and I have often expressed a similar feeling about the state of Indiana, although we acknowledge that this may be because we're just hyper-aware about cases close to home. But we asked Robert about his impression about why Stearns County has so many high-profile unsolved cases. Back in the 70s and 80s, they just didn't have the investigative tools and experience to, to properly investigate cases. In the cold cases of Stearns County book, there's several of them were solved you know, 15, 20, 25 years later. And the information to solve them was, was in the files you know, from within days of these occurring. For whatever reason, just the, the nature of how uh, investigators were hired and promoted and trained, they just didn't have the tools. And I think they just got overwhelmed uh, with some of the crime going on there. One man who contributed mightily to that crime wave was Joseph Tur. We've heard his name pronounced Tur and Turi. We decided to just go with Tur. Now, here is the main thing you need to understand about Joe Tur. He was a serial killer. He killed because he resented women, and he seemed to see them as little more than objects which he could use to sexually gratify himself. I think one of the things that stood out to me about Joe Tour was that you know he was he was pretty disorganized and he was sloppy. Yet he went on you know this this killing spree for for several years, and I think the other thing is that you know he had different methods of how he would kill. He was pretty consistent. I think I believe you know every every known victim or killing he was involved with involved a waitress at a restaurant. In some cases, it was a stabbing. Uh, one case it was a shotgun. Another case was a hatchet or some kind of similar tool. So there wasn't necessarily consistency with with the pattern of his crimes, other than 
that he was focused on and zeroed in on waitresses. Uh, it's an interesting case, and, and actually, you know, surprised that there isn't more uh, about him in terms of studies and uh, documentaries and, and different things, because I, I think it, he's a unique individual, and, he, you know, his patterns of crimes are, like I said, rather sloppy, and it, it is kind of a wonder how he got away with it for so long. Robert wrote about Turr in his book, Cold Cases of Stearns County, Minnesota. In addition to Robert's book, fans of the podcast In the Dark know that episode 7 of the show's first season covers Turr. We ended up reaching out to Turr in prison to get his side of the story. He never got back to us. Frankly, based on many of his statements, it sounds like we'd have been in store for his usual spiel blaming his troubles on an unhappy childhood and denying responsibility for raping and murdering women and children. Here's Robert. His communications after his initial arrest in the year or so following that, he, he indicated a need for and desire for rehabilitation. He grew up in a broken home, ended up in a foster home, various foster homes. He didn't get along well with his stepmother. Uh, he got along well with his father, but uh, other than that, I don't think he had, he didn't have much for family structure. The only place he was truly happy was um, a foster home in Superior, Wisconsin, where he was for two years. Like most of us, Tour suffered some romantic setbacks in life. Uh, he had a girlfriend, her name was Terry, and they were pretty serious, but she ended up uh, leaving him and married another man. But Tour didn't react to getting dumped like most people do. He has basically said in a number of interviews that it was that experience that triggered his rage against women. He kind of used that as even in the crimes he confessed to, he would later recant and you know basically say he didn't do it. You almost feel like, you know, the next thing out of his mouth is going to be, you know, it happened because of what happened to me, you know, growing up. A lot of people have the same types of problems he had and a lot of people have a tough life, and very few of them turn out to be serial killers. Apparently, in Tour's mind, suffering one romantic rejection entitled him to carry out a campaign of harassment, rape, and murder against all women. As Robert points out, this inability to assume responsibility for his own actions ended up becoming a key aspect of Tour's character. And it may help to explain some of his behavior after his crimes came to light. From here, Robert will take us through four cases linked to Tur. He's been convicted in three of these cases. The fourth, sadly, remains unsolved, although there seems to be substantial circumstantial evidence pointing to Tur. The first murders took place in a quiet corner of Stearns County at the house of single mother Alice Hewling and her children. Well, Alice Hewling was 36 years old. She, she was a very hardworking single parent with four children. Uh, she had been, uh, by 1978, she had been divorced from her husband, Daryl, for five years. She worked at a local printing company. She moved a home to her 18-acre farmstead in rural St. Augusta area, which is south of St. Cloud. Her children ranged in ages from 11 to 16. 
And they're all very active in school and sports and, and 4-H clubs and different activities. Susie was the oldest. She was 16. And she actually worked part-time at the Cozy Cafe in Kimball, Minnesota. The younger three children were 13-year-old Wayne, 12-year-old Patty, and 11-year-old Billy. On December 15, 1978, Billy awoke to the sound of a struggle. So in the early morning hours of December 15th, Billy Dueling, who was 11, was in his upstairs bedroom, which he shared with his brother Wayne, who was 13. He heard arguing going down on downstairs, and then he heard a, a gunshot. And at that point, Wayne also woke up. They could hear the footsteps. The hallway light switched on. They could hear the footsteps coming up the stairs. And a man came into the bedroom, and Wayne said, Who are you? What are you doing here? And the man backed a shotgun and, and shot Wayne in the, in the head and it killed him instantly. Then the man went across the hallway to Susie's room, and Susie was the 16-year-old. <clears throat> and she screamed, but the man, the man shot her. Uh, single shot, again, killed her. He uh, <clears throat> came back to Billy's room and shot at his head. By this time, Billy, you know, had a minute to think about what was going on. He kind of slumped down under his covers and had his arms up above his head. And the bullet missed him. But the shooter, you know, poked him in the chest with the rifle and Billy reacted. So um, he shot again and and, and miraculously missed a second time. And then the killer proceeded to go down the hallway to Patty's room. Patty was 12 years old. He shot her to death. When he returned downstairs, Alice, the mother, was still alive. She was struggling and trying to crawl to the steps to, to aid her children. So the man uh, shot her again and killed her at that point. So Billy put on uh, a coat and, and boots and uh, was going to get help. And he was going to go next door to his neighbors, who was a Stearns County deputy by the name of John Dwyer. But he noticed that there were fresh footprints in the snow, and he figured the killer might be there. So he ran about over a mile off the road to the next neighbor and summoned help. So the first deputy to respond was Jim Castrila, and uh, he joined the next-door deputy, John Dwyer, and they went into the house. But authorities would soon learn some interesting facts about the nature of the relationship between Deputy Jim Dwyer and his neighbor, Alice Hewling. Dwyer actually became a suspect because he didn't want to go upstairs. He made the comment he didn't want to see the kids like like that because they were like family to him. He was also having an affair with Alice. and He actually had been in the house just 45 minutes before the killing. Dwyer was far from the only early suspect. Billy was the only survivor. They launched a, a big investigation and there were, there were a number of suspects. Billy himself was a suspect because it was just... People felt it was hard to believe that he survived. It turned out that the killer had used slugs. He had two slugs that he used when he shot at Billy. And so those are single shot, one bullet, had a straight path through through the blanket and into the wall. Whereas all the other victims were shot with a bird shot, which has a wide spread. He was very, very lucky. But he was cleared because they, he, you know, his, his mother had been beaten and they knew that 
you know, he could not have done that at his age and his his size and so forth. The ex-husband was a suspect, Daryl, but he was a truck driver and was determined to be out of state. Deputy John Dwyer was a suspect. And he was eventually cleared. And then there was the drifter. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's ro.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There had been a man arrested about four days later. He was bothering customers at the Clearwater Travel Plaza restaurant nearby. And uh, turned out he had a stolen car. Well, that, that was Joe Tour. A number of items were confiscated from his car. He was arrested and he was interviewed for the healing murders, but um, was deemed not responsible at that point. Cops instead turned their focus to a different man. Top suspect actually became a priest, Father Paul Folsom, who was actually at, at various points was suspect in several other murders in Stearns County. I've never quite figured out exactly why, but you know, he was he was investigated and taken lie detector tests for the Wetterling kidnapping as well as the, the 1974 murders of the, the Riker sisters in Santa Cloud. Yes, you heard that right. Apparently, this priest was looked at in quite a few high-profile cases in the area. Here's Robert. He's still alive. He's somewhere in a, living in a retirement home, but um, 
at times I've wanted to call him to find out why he was a suspect in all these cases. But some of the reasons that Father Paulson was a suspect was he had, he had misled investigators about how long he had known Alice. And, you know, he had a couple of 12-gauge shotguns, which, which were the type of guns used in the murders. And he failed multiple lie detector tests. So at the, at the about the one-year anniversary, Stearns County Sheriff uh, Charlie Graff essentially declared that Father Folsom was his lone suspect at that point. While it's not entirely clear why he was considered one of the county's usual suspects, none of the charges against Father Folsom ever stuck. And even when they were working that lead, authorities started sounding pretty stumped in the press. In the June 21, 1979 issue of the St. Cloud Times, Stearns County Sheriff Charlie Graft was quoted as saying the case would take time to solve as it involved a lot of quote-unquote dog work and he could only spare one detective at a time. I can't afford to take a chance on losing this in court somewhere down the line. I'm not going to screw this case up by saying something, he said. You guys in the press can hang me if you want, but I sure as hell would hate to see somebody walk out of a courtroom a free man because of some technicality. It would eventually turn out that the whole case could have come to a close much sooner if the sheriff had bothered sicking another investigator on that dog work. Especially after the revelations about the Hewling case that 1981 brought about. But before we get to that, let's head to Afton, Minnesota, an hour and a half drive from St. Augusta through Minneapolis and St. Paul. Here's Robert to tell us about the next case, which happened just a few months after the massacre of the Hewling household, after the snow had thawed in Minnesota. Marla Swanghouse was 18 years old. She was just three weeks away from graduating from high school. She lived in the rural Afton, Minnesota area. Uh, went to high school in Stillwater, which is a, a border town on the Minnesota side of the, of the St. Croix River between Wisconsin and Minnesota. And she was a waitress at the Jean Daniels restaurant just outside of Afton. Her stepfather's business, which was Greg's auto body shop, was actually diagonally across the street from there. On a Friday night, I believe it was May 4th, she was being harassed by a man in a leather jacket. And he was basically trying to ask her for a date. He uh, offered her for a ride on this motorcycle, you know, she declined and she continued to serve him. And then he offered, you know, finally offered some good dope in exchange for a, a roll in hay. He felt that was a fair trade. And that got him kicked out of the restaurant by the manager. And so the man went outside, revved up his motorcycle, and then left. But Marlis, when she was driving home, felt uneasy and she had told others that uh, she was being followed by the motorcycles and then so she did some zigzagging and and took some different roads and felt like she she lost him and then she she went home the next week tuesday may 8th uh, marlis drove to school again just three weeks left until graduation on her way home after school she dropped off a couple friends then went to town and picked up some mail for her mother at Greg's Auto Body. So that's, again, that's uh, Kitty Corner from, from the restaurant where she worked. So Marlis drove home. She got there. She noticed there was a Mustang in the yard. And that was not unusual with her stepfather's auto business. There was quite frequently stray cars there, unfamiliar cars. 
she went inside the house and, and was almost immediately confronted by this man. And he demanded sex, offered her dope. She refused, and the man hit her three or four times in the head with a hatchet. About 3.50 that afternoon, Marlis's mother, Fran, Woolen House, came home and found her daughter's body lying in the office. And she um, called the ambulance, and Marlis was rushed to the hospital. And she, she stayed in a coma for, for a couple of days before she ultimately died of her injuries. There was a pretty big investigation. There were, there were some local suspects. There was a neighbor who was a, a drug addict. He was a top suspect for a number of years. But like the healing case, the brutal murder of Marlis Wollenhaus remained unsolved for a number of years. Had her murderer been apprehended immediately, then it's likely that another young woman would not have disappeared from St. Cloud that autumn. Here's Robert to discuss the story of 20-year-old Joni Beersbach. She worked full-time as an admin person at the Stearns County office. I, I don't know exactly what she did, but she, it was some kind of social services type work. But she worked part-time as a waitress at the Perkins restaurant in St. Cloud. And she played volleyball every Monday night. And on her way to, to volleyball on Monday, November 5th, 1979, she stopped into Perkins to get her paycheck. And she was never seen again. The following day, her fiancé, John Fishback, drove from Melrose to St. Cloud. He did this, they did this every Tuesday night. They would have a date night. And that was about 40 miles away. John worked on the family farm there. And so he drove Tuesday night to meet Joni at her apartment. And her roommate said she wasn't there. And they hadn't seen her since the previous night when she left for volleyball. So he reported her missing right away. And then he proceeded to drive up and down the street. So this is now 24 hours after she had been at the Perkins restaurant. Well, he found her car in the uh, car parking lot. Her purse was still in the car. The parking lot is really right next to the Mississippi River. And so since her car was there, the police, the working theory was that she somehow got into the river and was swept away. And so that was, that was their thought for a long time. Sadly, it would become clear later that the 20-year-old had met a far more violent fate than an accidental drowning. But before the true circumstances of her death were discovered, another woman working as a waitress would vanish. This time, the crime would happen in West St. Paul. Here is Robert. Well, Diane Edwards was 19 years old, September 26, 1980. She was on her way home from her waitress job at the Perkins restaurant in West St. Paul, Minnesota. And she was abducted by a man. There were four witnesses. Four teenage girls saw someone abduct Diane and put her into a station wagon that they described as, as older and rusted out. And so there was lots of flyers put out. As a side note, those flyers would go on to inspire the late Grant Hart of Husker Du, a popular St. Paul, Minnesota punk band, to pen the song Diane. The song is written from the perspective of her killer as he tries to lure Diane into his car. Honestly, it makes for a grim listen, knowing what really happened to this young woman. Here's Robert. About two weeks later, a man found 
her purse or somehow he found her identification at a park about 35 miles northwest of West St. Paul. And he had heard about the case, so he called authorities and they searched and within a, a very short time, they found her body very close to, to where the man had found the, her identification. And her, she was nude. Her, her clothing was, was folded and piled up very neatly alongside of her. But she had been raped and stabbed in the chest a single time. And again, so there was a lot of media attention. And it wasn't until a few days after her, her body was found that police arrested Joe Tour on suspicion of rape and assault charges. So he had, within just a few days, kidnapped and raped three other women. They were able to escape and were not killed, fortunately. But when they arrested Tour, they searched his car and they found a lot of photos of Diane Edwards. There was posters, there were notes with her work phone number, and uh, he admitted that he was a regular customer and admitted also that he was, he was cruising the streets that night looking for, looking for girls. In fact, you know, once it all shook out, uh, it was determined that he actually had rear-ended somebody 15 minutes before he kidnapped Diane Edwards and attempted to abduct the female driver of that vehicle, but she, she was able to get away. Joe Tour was definitely on the prowl to kidnap and rape a woman that night. And he knew Diane Edwards because he had frequented that particular restaurant. He was a drifter. You know, they determined he kind of moved around from job to job, actually lived in his vehicle a lot of the time. There was one article where he actually sold the Ford Galaxy that he was driving when he abducted Diane. And they, I don't, they never, never did find it. He, there was one story that he sold it to a junkyard and one that he sold it private. And they just, they never did find that car. After he was interviewed, he uh, agreed to lead investigators out to where he had killed her. And he led them to within just a few feet. And this was a complicated drive, several roads, lots of side roads and so forth. And he knew exactly how to get there. And what's interesting is the day after he leads police to where he dropped her body, he denied killing her which, of course, investigators knew was, was preposterous just because of the fact he led them right to where he had killed her. Turo was now in custody. In addition to leading police to the crime scene, in May of 1981, he confessed to Hennepin County Sheriff's investigator Archie Sonnenstall. Sherburne County attorney Thomas McGibbon led the prosecution against her with assistance from Hennepin County assistant attorney Thomas Heffelfinger and Dakota County Assistant Attorney Thomas Van Horn. During the trial, Turr tried to act like a big man, exploding in anger and sarcastically referring to his confession as a bullshit tape. He claimed that he'd only confessed to Sillenstahl in order to get the investigator to have Turr's rape charges thrown out. In other moments, Turr wept openly while talking about his own troubles in the courtroom. According to the Minneapolis Star, that prompted one memorable exchange. At no time during the confessions and the trip and when describing these brutal acts did you cry, Heffelfinger said. Tour snapped back with, I didn't do it. Why should I cry? Tour's antics convinced no one. On January 6, 1982, he was sentenced to life in prison. 
The Associated Press described him as sitting emotionless as the sentence was read. Heffelfinger told the press, Diane Edwards was treated with particular cruelty and violence above and beyond other crimes of this nature. And the defendant should be responsible for that. He's a vicious man who's been taken off the street. We agree with Heffelfinger that women living in Minnesota were safer with Tourgon. But police had yet to uncover the convicted murderer's other bloody secrets. In fact, in a transparent bid for clemency, Tour would suddenly become extremely interested in focusing on tending to his mental health. Once he was arrested, that's kind of where he started talking about his childhood, his upbringing. And, and uh, it was at that point where he was wanting to get help. You know, he tried a lot of different things. He tried these confessions with uh, other inmates writing them out for him. And his end game was he wanted to be assigned to the uh, St. Peter's Security Hospital, which was a mental institution, because he wanted to be treated there. And he felt that if he went to a regular prison, he would be murdered. Knew he wouldn't live long, and he actually, after he was convicted of the, of the Edwards murder, he actually uh, did attempt to commit suicide just before he was transferred to Stillwater. But anyway, it was at that point he claimed that he had dated several hundred women over the past five years, and he was primarily meeting them through waitressing or through through the restaurants where he would meet the waitresses. Diane Edwards was, of course, one of those waitresses. So was Susie Hewling and Marla's Wollenhouse. And, most likely, Joni Biersbach. Here's Robert. Joe Tour, after he was convicted of, of the Diane Edwards murder, he actually wrote a confession. He had a, a prison inmate write it out for him. And Joe signed it. On January 8th, 1982, days after Tour's conviction, the Winona Daily News reported that KSTP-TV had broke the news that Tour had confessed to the healing murders and the murder of Marlis Wollenhaus. The Associated Press also reported that an informant allegedly linked Tour to the disappearance of Joni Biersbach. Apparently, Tour had information about where her body lay. And he had indicated that he dumped her body in the quarry. It's called Dead Man's Quarry in St. Cloud, and that's actually the same quarry where... The Raker sisters had been stabbed to death in 1974. They searched the quarry. I think they dived for about two days and, and couldn't find anything. And so the case was, was quiet again for, for another couple of years. I think just given the fact that her body wasn't where Tour sat, it just made this story unbelievable. But in 1984, seven-year-old boy was hunting along the Mississippi River, just downstream a few miles. And he found some bones. He brought them to show and tell. And the the principal felt like they were human bones. So he called the boy's mother and she called police. And he led investigators to where where he found the bones. And they found more bones. They found teeth. They found jewelry. And they found uh, a sweater. And uh, I believe it was through dental records they were actually able to confirm that that was Joni Birschbach's body. And... They knew just from evidence at the scene that she was put there. She didn't drift down the river. One of the key points they made was that, because this is several miles from where her car was, one of the first things that falls off a human body when you're in the water for an extended period of time is your jewelry, your rings. 
and they were still with the bones, so they knew that that where she was found was where she was put into the into the water. So once once they identified her, in fact, uh, her her fiance, this is now you know uh, five years later, John Fishback was at his brother's wedding in northern Minnesota, so he was called by investigators to to rush to St. Paul, and he he confirmed again that uh, it was Joni. At that point, he was the top suspect, as you would expect. You know, loved one to be. You know, so he did a lie detector test, and they, they raked him over the coals pretty good. And then the case, you know, it was dormant for another twelve years after the founder body. So Tur's confession in the Beersbach case went nowhere. And in his typical style, Tur had quickly walked back all admissions in the press, calling them BS. It would have been very easy to dismiss him as a one-time killer who liked to boast and make up stories to pester police or to soothe his ego with more attention. But a decade after Biersbach was found murdered, Tour would find himself under scrutiny once more. See, the year 1994 would prove to be a turning point for the Marlis Wollenhaus investigation. Here's Robert. Something prompted the case to heat up again in 1994, and they actually offered a $20,000 reward. They started to get some more tips. The, the investigation was, was energized. And again, at about that same time, Everett Doolittle took over the case as part of the cold case unit with the BCA. That's Everett Doolittle, who was then a senior special agent with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. He was part of a cold case homicide unit reviewing unsolved crimes. Remember his name. He's going to be the one to help close out a bunch of these cases. And one of the things he noted was that when Marlis's murder was one of those that Joe Tour had confessed to back in 1981-82. But then he recanted and said, you know, I couldn't have done it. I was working at the Ford plant in St. Paul. So investigators at the time, Dewey, investigated and found that, indeed, Joe Tour was punched in working the second shift on the date of the murder. Just because of the timing and the distance, you know, he could not have been the killer. So they moved on. So when Everett looked at this, he decided to double-check. It was true there was a Joe Tour punched in at the Ford plant, but it was Joe Tour Sr. Joe's father was working that night. So now the alibi is no longer valid. Ultimately, Tour was indicted, tried, and found guilty. I believe that was um, 1998. So 19 years after the fact, he finally was convicted of the Marlis Wallenhouse murder. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Doolittle also delved into Joni Beersbach's case file. Investigator Everett Doolittle was reviewing the file, and there was another inmate by the name of Jeffrey Morris uh, who, who um, had written one of one of Tour's confessions. There's multiple confessions. And in this particular confession, he made the comment about uh, the spinometer in the car uh, that made a loud kicking sound. And Tour had told him it drove him nuts, drove him crazy. And so he do a little followed up with uh, Joni's family and confirmed that, in fact, her car, the speedometer, made a very irritating and loud ticking sound. And so once again, there was, you know, circumstantial evidence, but ultimately they determined that it was very, very likely that Tour had murdered Joni Birchbaum. This is a chapter I called A Tick Short of Justice because of the ticking sound and the fact that Tour was never tried in that murder. As I was posting about this case, I heard from a number of people. One was a cousin of Joni's. She described to me how she was with Joni's father when a call came in that they had found her body and identified it as Joni. And she said that was the first and only time her and other members of the family saw her father break down and cry. And so it was a very emotional moment for them. I also heard from John Fishback himself, and, you know, he, he appreciates that, you know, Joni's name is still out there, and, and he's still bitter about the fact that there was no justice. The other interesting thing is I, you know, I had somebody who was uh, following my, my uh, author page. I had posted a couple things about Joni. This is back as I was writing. And she messaged me and says, you know, Rob, I actually witnessed Joe Tour take Joni Birchbach from the Perkins restaurant. And she was a teenager, and she was there with two of her siblings and, and her mother. And she saw something happen. She didn't know what was what was going on at the time. But then the next day on the news, they showed a picture of her. And her mother said, say, come in here by the TV. Isn't that the woman we saw at the Perkins last night? And sure enough, it was. And so she eventually had to testify. You know, there was never a trial for the Beersbach case. But there, I, I believe it was during the, the Marlis Wallenholz case that she had to come and testify that she saw Tour basically kidnap Joni from, from the restaurant. But it was interesting that because she reported that to police at the time, within within a couple of days of, of the, her disappearance, but it was never followed up on until Doolittle read through the file. There just wasn't follow-up. The, the closest to the family I've talked to would be her former fiancé. And you know, I think that resigns to the fact there's never going to be justice in the case. You know, Tour is never going to get out of prison. You know, the DA had just indicated that they're confident he did it, that Tour committed this murder, but they felt like there was not enough direct evidence to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And once again, in this case, Joni was stabbed. And in his confession, I think he had written also that he strangled her after raping her in the woods there near where he, he dumped her body. Sadly, Beersbach's case remains technically unsolved, although the evidence certainly points toward Tour. But Tour would face justice in one more case, the massacre of the Hewlin family. Doolittle took on that case, and he caught a number of chilling details that the original detectives had missed. He reviewed the evidence that had been collected in the Hewlin case, especially the items that were in 
the car that Joe Tour was was caught driving. There was a booklet notebook with several women's names and phone numbers and license plates. So somehow Tour would stalk a woman, get her license plates, and was able to determine through some state agency was able to get her name and phone number. I haven't quite figured out how he did that back in, back in the 70s and 80s, but he was able to do that. So they had this notebook with all these women's names. Many of them were waitresses. There was a billy club in the car that was wrapped with like steering wheel type covered leather. And markings on that billy club matched bruises on Alice Hooley's body. And so that was a very strong piece of circumstantial evidence. There was one other thing. There was a, a little Batmobile that was found in that car. And there were no notes on it. But uh, what Everett Doolittle did was he called Billy Fooling, who again was the sole survivor of this, this tragedy, and he asked him if he was missing any toys. And Billy said, why? Did you find my Batmobile? And that's, that is basically when Doolittle knew that Tour had killed the Hooling family. And there's actually some audio clips of the original interview with Tour, and you could tell that he just didn't understand family relationships. He thought, you know, when he was asked about this car, he got very agitated. And this, is, again, is back in 1978, and said it was his granddaughter's, uh, his grandkids' car. And they pointed out to him that he was only 26 year, years old and couldn't have a granddaughter. And then he said, well, it's, it's his sister's, or it's his, his, uh, his daughter's kid. They're like, well, that would make you the grandfather. And ultimately said, it's his sister's kid. That makes me the uncle, right? So there's, there's all this audio. It's just really kind of messed up about the relationships. I think it's kind of indicative of how he had disconnects with family growing up. But it's just, it's just fascinating how it took 16 years to connect that Batmobile to, to Billy and essentially close the case. And uh, he was finally indicted. Another five years went by before Tour was indicted. 1999. So it was uh, 21 years after the fact that he was tried and convicted in the healing murders. One question we had for Robert was, why did justice take so long in these cases? For example, in the healing murders, Tour was on detectives' radar and seemed like a strong suspect from the jump. We already discussed issues around following up on leads, but that's not the only problem at play here. They didn't follow up on the, on, on the toys and the fact that, you know, there was this notebook filled with women's names. They didn't see the pattern. Even a couple of years later, Tour's name came up. It, I, I would have thought it would have caused someone to look at it. But I think the other thing is they were so focused on the priest who had failed the lie detector test. And I think you zero in on a suspect like that and you start to get confirmation bias. And everything you see, you see in the light that favors your theory. That is probably one of the most dangerous mindsets and one of the most unfortunate things that happens in any, in any investigation is confirmation bias. And then we asked Robert to speak about what ultimately went right in these cases, allowing authorities to provide some answers for surviving family members. Stars kind of lined up to solve, ultimately solve these cases. One was Everett Doolittle had a, a reputation for being a good, no-nonsense, good at kind of dissecting cases and getting down to the nitty-gritty and what's really relevant and what isn't, separating out all the noise. But I think the other thing you had, these crimes 
uh, occurred primarily in the late seventies, early eighties, before the, the age of computers, and you didn't have a lot of interagency communication. So there wasn't a lot there to help link these cases together. Law enforcement's always very busy, very heavy caseload. I work on cases as an amateur sleuth. We don't have actual responsibilities. We don't have to dot all of the I's and cross out the T's. And you know, these investigators have to do that. And I think sometimes the work becomes so burdensome that it's tough to do some of these interagency things, especially back in the day before there was real simple, you can send out an email. You can't send out an email in 1979 to 20 other counties to find out if you have a similar crime in your area. And now you can. And so there's just a lot more tools available, a lot more technology to help make the time more efficient and share information. I think Everett Doolittle was was brilliant to access a variety of files that crossed paths with a killer who was, you know, kind of a drifter. I think that worked to his advantage because he did move around. And so it was hard to, hard to pin him down. Tour's habit of preying on waitresses is one of the more chilling details of his crimes. Here's a man who seemingly saw the waitresses he encountered not as human beings worthy of respect, but as objects to project his needs and desires onto. Here's Robert. My opinion is that Tour was was a person who was uncomfortable in social situations, but something like eating at a restaurant is kind of a forced type of situation where everybody eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He used that as a way to meet girls. Tour talks in his interviews about how he actually had hundreds of dates with waitresses, and that's how we would meet girls. And, you know, he even says in, in one interview that sometimes they said yes, sometimes they didn't, but he didn't kill them just because they said no. But in some cases he did. I, I just think that for him, it was a programmed type social situation that he could make himself fit into. Anyone could, you know, anyone can come into a restaurant, order foods and chit chat with the waitress. It's part of their job. It's part of the process. And I think he was able to fit himself into that situation and couldn't do that in any other way. You'll notice that um, Alice's oldest daughter, Susie, was a waitress at the Cozy Cafe in Kimball, Minnesota. And after the fact, I had seen some documentation that he had actually harassed Susie and asked her for a date in the parking lot after work, and she re- rejected him. And that, he, you know, he has said, uh, whether it was in the letters, the confession letters he wrote in to, with prison inmates' assistance, he has said that his intent was to go there to rape Susie. That's why he was at the home. In another case, he actually had gone there earlier today and was going to kill all the chickens at the farm, but decided to come back that night and rape Susie. Uh, so it was, he definitely had stalked her. He knew where she lived. And that was kind of a pattern as he would follow when and find out uh, where they lived and get their names and numbers. That was his modus operandi. As we mentioned earlier, Tour is still alive. He is currently incarcerated at the Minnesota Correctional Facility at Stillwater. There are no restaurants there. There are no waitresses to stalk there, no women feeling pressure to smile at him, to accommodate him. 71-year-old Tour 
gets to chew his food in a prison cafeteria while he waits on death. Thanks so much to Robert for his excellent insight on these cases. We'll link to his Facebook page and books, both on the Wetterling case and crime in Stearns County, in our show notes. Justice for Marlis by John S. Monday is another book dealing with this case. Monday married Marlis's mother. We're also linked to the tipping point study we referenced at the top of the show. This episode also cited reporting from the Associated Press, the Minneapolis Star, the St. Cloud Times, and the Winona Daily News. To our surprise, we've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. Thanks for the interest. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.